0: She lived in Samaria. That made her a Samaritan. In the Jewish mind, in the first century when Jesus came along, there was nothing worse than being a Samaritan. Well, the Jews, of course, didn't like the Romans being there. as no conquered people like the Romans. But as much as they disliked the Romans, they had a harder time with their neighbors, the Samaritans. Well, I'm sure those people who were God believers in, in Israel were troubled by atheists, but they had less... They had, they had less prejudice against atheists than they had against Samaritans. And there was some history. You know, whenever people don't like people, there's typically history. And there was history that caused this racial divide. You see, the Samaritans were neighbors of the Jews to their north. But hundreds of years before, the Samaritans had done something that had disgraced themselves. And I'll tell you what happened. I mean, let me just give you, forgive, before I get into this part of the sermon, let me give you just a little bit of geography, geography background. If you think about Judea, where Jerusalem was in the temple as being the furthermost south place, and Galilee, where Jesus was from, being the furthermost north part of the nation, Samaria was right in the middle. I mean, if you want to think about this in modern terms, you could say, okay, if, if it were like, you know, in our area, Judea would be like Texas. That would be the holy land. I'm kidding. And Galilee would be like Kansas. And Samaria would be, forgive me, like Oklahoma, right in the middle. (laughs) And so you have to understand that it's strange that the Jews don't want anything to do with Samaritans because the Samaritans are their neighbors to the north. But centuries before, as I said, the Samaritans had disgraced themselves. Forgive me for the backstory here in the history, and I don't want to lose you in the weeds on this, but we do need a little bit of a history lesson for us to understand what's going to happen this day in the life of Jesus. After the death of Solomon, Israel as a nation split there were 10 tribes that became what we know as the northern kingdom and two tribes which became the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. That's why when you read the book of 1 and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it can look like there are two kings in Israel on the throne at the same time. And you're not seeing double, there are. There's a king in the southern kingdom and a king in the northern kingdom. But both of those both of those nations went into idolatry. But the northern kingdom went into idolatry from the very beginning. And God had said to both kingdoms, "If you don't, even though you're both Jews, if these kingdoms don't quit worshiping idols, God said, I'm going to let you go into captivity. And he did. But that's, that's where some of our issue comes in. Because the northern kingdom went into captivity far earlier. They went into captivity in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the, the big players on the block at that time. The southern kingdom didn't go into captivity until 586 B.C., and they went into captivity to the Babylonians. And that's where you read in the prophets about the captivity, and you read in the book of Daniel, and and you read about those things that happened when the Babylonians took, took the southern kingdom. But there was something that happened when the northern kingdom went into captivity that affected the racial makeup of the area. The Assyrians not only took the people of Israel into captivity, but they themselves moved into Israel. And some of the Jews, and this is really, really big, and you must grasp this in order to understand the racial divide. Some of the Jews just got so worn out from from being from living in Israel, they just said, we're just going to give up. We're going to give in on being Jewish. And they intermarried with the Assyrians. Intermarriage in our, in our culture today doesn't mean anything. But back in, back in those days to the Jewish people, that was just the one thing that you didn't do. Now, because of that, the people who lived in Samaria, were, they, were, they, were, they were disliked by the Jewish people. But there's something else that you have to understand, because if you, if you just know that part, it was like, well the, well, the Jewish people, they should be ashamed of themselves for having a problem with their northern neighbors. You know, we're celebrating Christmas, those of us who follow Jesus Christ, but our Jewish friends, as you know, celebrate a different holiday during this season. They celebrate Hanukkah. And I just had a marvelous opportunity. The Israeli consulate asked me if I would film a Hanukkah blessing. And so earlier this week, I, Mary Alice filmed me in my house, and I was sitting there with menorah, and, and it was the fifth day. I was taping for the fifth day of Hanukkah, and, and, and so I was lighting the five candles. Do you know what Hanukkah's about? It's important because if we don't understand what Hanukkah is about, we'll have a hard time with this story. See, Hanukkah is about the time frame that we Christians typically call the intertestament period. There are 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. Sometimes we call those the silent years, but that's a bad name because God was busy doing a lot of things. But see, the Hanukkah is all about something that happened in those silent years. Again, I'm, I don't want to lose you in the weeds, but if I do lose you in the weeds with this historical background, then just pick up when I get back with the narrative again. But this is still important. For all of you who like backstory... Maybe you'll get something out of this. It'll help us understand the racial divide. The 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew were very painful years in Israel. And here's why. Well, we talked about how the Assyrians took the northern kingdom and the Babylonians came along and they were there for 70 years. The Babylonians got conquered by the Medes and Persians. That's how we have the book of Daniel in that time frame. And then after... The Babylon, after the Medes and Persians conquered the area, then the Greeks came with Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered the world quickly. He went through the world like a hot knife through butter, but what he didn't count on was dying at 33. And when you die at 33, you don't typically leave successors, and Alexander the Great didn't. He had four generals, and all his territories got divided up by those four generals. I'm, I'm, make, I'm going somewhere with this quickly. Just stay with me. Two of the generals, though, were more powerful than the others. One was a guy named Ptolemy, who was situated in Egypt. And the other was Seleucus, who was situated in Syria. For those of you who like to study geography, you know already, you've got Egypt down here in the south, and you've got Syria up here in the north. And so these two generals basically founded kind of empires. The Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids up here in Syria. But what's right in the middle between those two empires? Israel. And so every once in a while, the Ptolemies would be stronger, and then the Seleucids would be stronger, and it's like a tug of war. And the knot was always going across Israel, and the poor Jews, it didn't matter who was in power, they got kicked around. Now again, here's where we're going that will help us understand the first century in Jesus' time frame. In around 250 B.C., there were Jewish people who said, we are so tired of getting kicked around. There is no benefit in being Jewish. All it does is bring us grief. And they said, we may as well give up and become Greek. We must just become Hellenists. And there were actually high priests that took Greek names. They just said, being Jewish is a problem. Now, during that time... One of the Seleucids, one of the Seleucid rulers named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was especially brutal, the Bible considers him a pretype of the Antichrist, he came into Israel and he defiled the temple. And so did he defile the temple that he took pig blood and smeared it on the inside of the Holy of Holies. And no wonder so many of the Jewish people said, It's just too painful to be Jewish. But there were a remnant who said, we are God's people, and we are who God made us to be. And up rose a leader, a priest by the name of Judah Maccabee. And Maccabee led a revolution. He led a revolt. And this little ragtag group overcame the Seleucids and actually won independence. And the time came for them when they won that independence to rededicate the second temple. And there was only enough sacred oil for one day to keep the candles or the the menorah burning. But there was a miracle. And even though there was just one day of oil, the candles, the menorah stayed lighted for eight days. And that's where we get Hanukkah. So you have to understand I just want us to understand the disconnect that existed in Jesus' day. I mean, because here you have the, the, the Samaritans who intermarried with the Assyrians, and they said, We're just going to give up on being Jewish. But along comes Jesus in the first century, and, and the Jewish people that day said, We had to pay a fearful price to keep our identity. And so, consequently, there was a disconnect between the Jews and the Samaritans, their neighbors to the north. It was so bad that the Jewish people would travel around Samaria. In other words, if you wanted to go from Texas to Kansas, you just went through New Mexico. And and that's how they looked at life. I mean, it was we're just going to bypass Samaria. Never would they go through it if they could avoid it. If If a Samaritan was walking on the same side of the street as a Jewish person, a Jewish person would walk to the other side of the road to keep his or her feet from being defiled, which makes the story of the Good Samaritan kind of interesting when you think about it. But never, under any circumstance, would a a good, self-respecting Jewish person drink from the same vessel that a Samaritan drank from. Hold that. You'll need that in just a moment. But again, the tension was so great that when the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus, they thought about the worst thing they could say to him. And in John 8, 48, they said to him, you have a devil, you have a demon, and oh, by the way, you're a Samaritan too. That's how they felt about this. So let's now go into the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Let's just say you're his appointment secretary and you're setting up a day for Jesus. You're you're writing the agenda for the king of kings who's on the earth. You would think that the last person in the world that he would want to meet would be a Samaritan. But how about a Samaritan that even the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with? I mean, how, how about a Samaritan who was so bad that the other Samaritans crossed the side of the road to avoid her? But one morning Jesus announced to his disciples in John 4 verse 4, I have to go through Samaria. And there's no recording of any dialogue, but I think if I'd been Jesus' disciples, I would say, excuse me, sir, you you understand we, we don't go through Samaria. But evidently they didn't say anything. Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. Here's what you and I need to understand to understand today's talk. Jesus, the Savior, wants to talk to the last person in the world we would imagine. Let's meet her. This day is going to find her doing meaningless, necessary tasks that she always does. Her life has been over for a long time. She is just simply going through the motions, marking time, waiting to die. Her life is just a matter of putting food on the table and paying the rent and going to sleep and waking up and getting another token and playing another round. She's still in her 30s, but she looks much older. There's no such thing as a zombie, but if there was, she would be one of life's zombies. She is a dead woman walking. She, her life is finished because of some bad stuff that had gone down earlier. I have a vivid imagination. When you're reading news stories or watching news stories or checking out news on the Internet... Do you ever like hear about this horrible person who does horrible things? Here's a man who's like a killer. Here's a woman who's done some awful stuff. Do you ever like try to imagine what that person was like when they were a baby? I do. I think about this horrible person that one time was a baby in his mother's arms. I mean, at one time, this was a little girl with little girl dreams. I mean, how did all this bad stuff go down? What happened? And when you meet this woman in Jesus' story in John's Gospel, chapter 4, we have to bring ourselves to the point of recognizing that one time she was a little girl with little girl dreams in the first century in those days her dreams would have probably been that she's going to find a prince charming she's going to find the guy who loves her who cares about her who makes her laugh who makes her enjoy life she's going to find the guy that will live his life devoted to her and have kids and a beautiful family but five marriages and five divorces, five bitter divorces later, those little girl dreams are caked in mud. As I said a minute ago, I have a vivid imagination. And I think about the fact that she was married five times. Have you ever thought about those five weddings? I'm sure they weren't all the same. You know, because she's, she's on a, a, a path of gravity. She's on a, she's on a glide path. Her first wedding, I mean, I I know pretty much how things were back in those days from studying history. The first wedding would have been a big wedding. Her dad would have given her away, and all you dads who had to pay for a reception, check this out. They had receptions that lasted seven days. (laughs) Bring your checkbook or your card, (laughs) debit card. So I'm sure she had the big wedding. I mean, there was a note in the town, you know, on the Internet, this girl is getting married, and everybody, the town is turning out. But it failed. Have you lived long enough to figure out that people size you up and they will begin to give you, assign you a value based on the things that happen in your life? And I'm just sure the same thing happened with this lady. I mean, the people of the town sized her up and said, she got married, but it went south. And, but I'm sure the people of the town said, well, it's unfortunate that that kind of thing happens. Second wedding, bought a new dress, friends threw a party, gave her some gift cards, but it failed. And this time people sized her up and raised their eyebrows. Now they're wondering about her and they've quit giving her the benefit of the doubt. That's twice. Third wedding, just borrowed a dress from a friend, wasn't her size, didn't matter. Quick weekend to Vegas at a cheesy wedding chapel, the preacher looked like Elvis but it didn't work, and people sized her up and said she's damaged merchandise. She's on the clearance table of life. Fourth wedding? Why bother to change out of work clothes? They're just stopping by the justice of the peace after work. But of course, the fourth marriage failed, and people sized her up and said she's a loser. Fifth marriage? Fifth wedding? Who cares? Met the guy last night at a bar. Can't even remember where the ceremony took place, but what does it matter? It was a joke anyway. Of course it failed, and people sized her up and said, she's a throwaway. And now she's any man's who will give her a place to spend the night. And the people of the town look at her and say, she's only good for one thing, and that's being used. I'm sure there were days when she wondered, how did I wind up here? I didn't plan to wind up here. But clocks and calendars are stubborn things. They don't go in reverse. And now here she is, dead woman walking in her 30s, looking much older, just trying to figure out how to keep another day going. Nobody loved her. Nobody cared about her. Nobody believed in her. And on the morning when we meet her, when she gets up that morning, she doesn't expect anything different. She needs water. She lives in a town called Sychar. There is no running water. There's a well, Jacob's well, outside of town. She will take her jug, her water jug, and go out to the well and fill it up and carry the heavy rascal home and bring the water back for another day. It's just another day. And on top of that... She's going to go out at noon when it is wretchedly hot, and the other women will not go out at that time of day. They would have gone out early in the morning or late in the evening when it's cool, but she doesn't go then because it's just too painful to see herself through the eyes of the other women who go out there. If she goes out there when they go out there, she's going to be the topic of conversation, and she's seen it before and heard it before, and she just can't take another day. It's really tough when your whole nation is the wrong side of town and you're the town, supply your own word. But this is no ordinary day. She doesn't know it yet, but somebody does love her. Somebody does care whether she lives or dies. And as strange as it may sound, there's somebody who believes in her, or better yet, believes in what she can be. Spoiler alert, she is the reason why the son of God and the creator of the universe said, I have to go through Samaria. This whole trip is about the last person in the world that we think Jesus would want to meet. Okay, let's roll video. Get it in your head. You see her? She's leaving Sychar. She's got her water jug on her shoulder. She's walking out to the well. Her head's down. Her eyes are down. She's going to go. She's going to take care of the water. Nobody's going to be out there at the well. They never are. There never is anyone out there. She'll go. She'll drop the jug in the well. Get the water. She's going to go home. Uh oh. There's a guy there, sitting on the well. And on top of that, she can tell by his robe he's Jewish. Well, she knows what she's going to do. I mean, you and I both know. You know what it's like when you get on the elevator and you don't want to talk to anybody. You look up at the numbers like a video's going to suddenly start playing. (laughs) She's going to go, get her water, ignore him. He'll ignore her. Of course, he won't say anything to her. Jews and and Samaritans don't talk to each other. She get her water. She'll just act like he doesn't even exist. Maybe he'll get up and leave. Keep the video rolling. She gets to the well, ignoring him. Freeze that for a moment. To the best of your ability, get into her head. I mean, assume what she's thinking. I think you can if you try. I mean, she's saying to herself, My life is over. I'm hopeless. Nothing ever works for me. The only thing people have ever done is use me and throw me away. I don't know who this Jewish guy is. It doesn't matter. I'll get my water. I'll get out of here. <laughs> to the best of your ability, get into the head of the Son of God as he sits there on the well. Do you see him? He knows that she doesn't know who he is. He knows she doesn't have any idea of what she needs or how to get it. He knows she's going to throw up roadblocks to try to deflect what he's going to say to her. But he knows he's God, and he knows what's about to happen here. I've seen this. This is my favorite Bible story. I told everybody before the four o'clock service, I get to preach my favorite Bible story. Why is it my favorite Bible story? Because so many times in my vivid imagination, I've watched this happen, and I see Jesus sitting on the well with a smile tugging at the corners of his mouth because he knows what he's about to do here. I love Jesus for so many reasons. One of the reasons I love him is he always knows what he's doing. He does stuff nobody else can do, but he knows what he's going to do. So since now we've gotten into the head of the woman and the head of Jesus, let's unfreeze the video and roll it. And just as she's about to try to ignore him and get her water, the silence is broken with the Son of God saying to her, can I have a drink, please? We know already Jewish people don't drink from a same vessel a Samaritan would drink from, and Jesus clearly doesn't have a cup with him, so you, you understand what he's asking her. He's saying, would you mind getting me some water and letting me drink some out of, your, out of your jug? Now, it's at this moment that she's going to throw up a series of barriers, the same barriers that people throw up today. We'll let the first couple start with the, word, the letter R. The first thing she's going to throw up is a racial thing, a racial barrier. And so let's read it. In John chapter 4, verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritan. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and, and I am a Samaritan woman. Now, she understood that Jewish men didn't really talk to Jewish women. She's saying, like, we really should not be having this conversation at all because you're Jewish, and I'm a Samaritan. And beyond that, I don't know if you've noticed or not, I'm a woman. In effect, what she's asking Jesus was, didn't your mama teach you anything? <laughs> Now watch Jesus push her barrier down. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Oh, I wish I had time to just preach this first point. Jesus took down her racial barrier with this statement. The things that separate people from people don't separate people from Jesus. Can we just say that one more time? The things that separate people from people don't separate people from Jesus. I want you to hear me on something. You cannot be a racist and follow Jesus. You will never follow Jesus to racism. If you're a racist, you're following somebody, but it's not Jesus. You're following the other side. So Jesus was saying to her, listen, this is not about a racial thing. This is about what I can give to you. Now, let's look at the second barrier that she throws up. Let's call this a rational barrier, thinking barrier. Sir, she said, you don't have a bucket and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And beside, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer us better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I give will never be thirsty again. And this is the verse that we get our church name from. In fact, if you have a New Spring Bible, you'll notice this verse is engraved in the back cover of your Bible. Jesus said, it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, what's the barrier? The barrier is, I can't figure this out. You said you're going to offer me living water. You don't have a jug. This is a deep well. You're telling me you can give me better water than this? This is Jacob's well. In effect, what she's saying is, I can't figure salvation out. And by the way, neither can you or I. If you try to figure salvation out on your own, you'll never figure it out because it's something God reveals to us. Here's the third barrier. This one's big. You know, listen to me, New Spring. You know me, those of you who hear me preach. I try never to bring anything that might cause you to doubt your relationship with God. Religion's pretty good at that. But I need to go somewhere. Because I think there are many people who come close to salvation, but they stop prematurely. It's like they say a superficial yes to God. It's like, well, God, if you're offering me hell insurance, I'll take a policy. And they may pray a prayer. But here's the thing a prayer only makes sense. In other words, if we ask God to save us, it only makes sense if we understand our sinfulness. Because otherwise it would be incoherent. It wouldn't make any sense. So the third thing that she's going to do is she's going to give Jesus a superficial yes because she's got painful junk inside that she doesn't want to air out to anybody. And so consequently she just says to him, okay, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty. I won't ever have to come back to this well. In other words, I'm going to give you a superficial yes here. Just get you off my back. She said yes, right? Is this Jesus' time to say, okay, pray this prayer with me, and we'll send you this box with stuff in it? (laughs) No, because she, she hasn't quite dealt with what's broken yet. I mean, when I say deal with it, it wasn't like Jesus didn't want her to pay for it. He just wanted her to be honest about it. So Jesus says, go call your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And that was a safe answer. I mean... I don't have a husband can mean I never was married, I'm widowed. I mean, it can mean all kinds of things. So there's no reason for her to air out her dirty laundry in front of this Jewish guy that she's in this weird conversation with. So she just basically says, I don't have a husband. And that's when when Jesus gets real with her. He said, "Um, you're right. You've had five, and the one you have right now is not yours. Bam! Bam! What does Jesus take this barrier down with? New Spring, this is one of the most important things I'll ever say to you, those of you watching. It is safe for you to air your dirty laundry to Jesus because he will know what to do with it. It is okay to bring your brokenness to Jesus. It is is okay. You you are safe bringing your deepest hurts and your deepest pains and the things you're most ashamed of. It is okay for you to lay them out on the table before Jesus because he's going to go to the cross and take care of it. One by one, Jesus had taken down her barriers, the racial barrier, the rational barrier, the barrier of a superficial yes, but she's got one more barrier. This is a strange. She now opens up the religious barrier. She said, I, I see that you're a prophet. In other words, when Jesus told her, you've been married five times and the guy you have right now is not yours, she's like, oh, you want to talk religion. Okay, we'll talk religion. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans, because they couldn't worship at the temple, they invented their own temple, their own worship. It was pagan, a little bit of Jewishness. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And you know what? A lot of people stop short of knowing Jesus because they can say, well, it's a religious discussion. I was raised Baptist, or I was raised Catholic, or I was raised I mean, I was raised Buddhist, or I was raised Baha'i. You guys say this, and we say this. What's Jesus going to do with this barrier? Look at this. I mean, he could have said, well, we Jews are right. I mean, they were, but he doesn't. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in this way. Jesus is telling her what we say at New Spring every week. And what most people don't know about God, it is not about a religion. It's about a relationship. When you look at her face, you see the light starting to come on. She says something really interesting. Well, I know that Messiah is coming. I've heard that ever since I've been a little girl. Even in our church, they teach that. I've heard that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll, he'll explain all this. Jesus does the most extraordinary thing. I have searched the Gospels for another occasion where Jesus does what he does here, and I can't find another place. It is very clear that he's the Messiah. The angel announces that he will be. He calls himself the son of David, the son of man. Those are all messianic terms. But not even before Pilate does Jesus do what he does with this woman. It is the clearest, most pristine, most defined, most exclamatory statement. It is interesting to me that the son of God makes the greatest statement of who he is to the last person in the world. Jesus says to this woman, I am the Messiah. How beautiful. How beautiful is that? That the one who has promised from the very first story in Genesis chapter 3 that someday the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior is coming, Jesus says to the last person of the world, those words that we so want to hear, Jesus said, I am he. Well, love. I'm going to read this out of the message. The woman then took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. I mean, it was interesting. She came for one thing, got something very else, you know. Back in the village, she told the people, come see a man who knows all the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. And it is interesting to me that she kicked off one of the biggest revivals in the history of that whole area. Okay, I'm ready to close this down. Let me ask you a question. Help me with something. You heard the whole narrative, the whole discussion. What was it that clicked for her? What was it that Jesus said that clicked for her? Well, you say, well, Mark, she went back in the town, and she said, there's a man out there who knows everything I did. Yeah, but she knew that earlier. In other words, when she was still throwing up barriers, she knew that he knew everything that she did. What was it that clicked for her? And why did the whole town come out to see Jesus? I mean, she went back to town and said, there's a guy out here who told me everything I ever did. They all knew what she did. (laughs) That's not going to bring the town out. That's what they talk about in the town is all the stuff that she did. I mean, here's the woman coming back. There's a guy out there who told me everything I did. There's like, well, there's a bunch of guys in here who know everything you ever did. (laughs) What was it that clicked for the town? Well, for her. What clicked for her was, he knows everything about me, and he still has something for me. See, that's the problem that we have, and that's why we tend not to open things up with God, is because we know everything about us, and we have the fear that if he knows everything about us, then he won't want anything to do with us. And that's why we wear a mask, and that's why We try to come off looking okay with the people that we feel can or can't do things for us. We we had this feeling that if people knew everything about us, they wouldn't have anything for us. And that's pretty well how it works, isn't it, in this world? What clicked for her was he knows everything about me. And he still is offering me this gift. What was it that clicked for the town? Why would she be so excited that... Someone out there knows everything that she ever did. She was the last person in the world that we would ever think that Jesus would want anything to do with. But don't we all kind of feel that way? I mean, if you're an honest person, if you're a narcissist, you won't feel that way. But see, the thing about honest people feel that way because we know everything we've done. We know everything we thought about doing. We know what we would have done if we hadn't gotten arrested, you know, we didn't get arrested. We know everything about ourselves. And there's something about knowing everything you've ever done that makes you feel like the worst person in the world and the last person that Jesus would want anything to do with. But he shows up in our life and sets on our well. And he says to you and to me and to all of you watching, I know everything about you, and I still have something for you. And what is it that he offers? What did he offer her? What was she missing? She didn't have a life. She's a dead woman walking. So what did he offer her? He said, I can give you a life. I can give you what you don't have. I can give you a life. Not not every dead person walking is where she was. There are dead people walking who have a dedicated parking space where they work and make a half million dollars a year. There are lots of dead people walking who don't have lives. But to all of us, whether we're blue-collar or white-collar sinners, Jesus comes to you and me and says, I know everything about you. And I have something for you. I have a life. Not just a life down here, but a life forever. When he gave his purpose statement, Jesus handed his business card to us in Luke 19.10 and said the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And then he said on the other side of the card, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. I'm about to spend the most important three minutes that I may ever spend with you. In order to have this life, you must come to a place. And many of us may not have come here yet. If you live long enough, you will commit enough sins and make enough mistakes and deal with your inability to change. You will come to the place where you will say, I have no hope. Other than the grace of God. If you've not come there yet, you may believe in the grace of God. But you still believe that somewhere out there, even if you haven't achieved it yet, there's a goodness that's going to make you worthy. I thought about this week. My wife's car is four years old. I always figured somewhere down along the line I'd replace it. But I found out this year that the new models are only going to offer a hybrid. And that's a new thing to me. So I did some reading about hybrid Hi- hybrid powered vehicles. A lot of you know this already. You may have high- hybrid vehicles out in the parking lot. A hybrid vehicle has an electronic motor and a gasoline engine and the car is propelled by both. Well, that makes no difference at all to us today, but I think that a lot of us have the idea that an experience with Jesus is a hybrid engine. It's like, I do believe in the grace of God, but I also have the works motor and when my works aren't good enough then the grace of God kicks in but you can never go to heaven believing that because it gets in the way of the gospel the only way to go to heaven the only way to have a life is to come to that place willingly where I say I have no hope but grace I feel like the last person in the world that God would want anything to do with me But he knows everything about me, and he still has something for me. And I come. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a song at the end of service that said, in fact, Billy Graham used this for years, just as I am without one plea. But that the blood of God, blood of Christ, was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Sir, give me this water. Not sell it to me. Give me this water. Would you pray with me right now? Some of you now watching online, watching on television, here in the auditoriums, you have come to that place. You have embraced that reality that you have no hope other than the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. And you are saying, Sir, give me this water. So the good news is he always answers that prayer. Just like he answered it for this woman, he will answer it for you. And I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and you can, I'll pray it slowly. You can decide if you wanna repeat it after me or not. Or you can pray your own words. This is a big moment right now. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I may feel like the last person in the world, but you know everything about me. And you still love me. And you've offered me forgiveness and everlasting life. I ask you for that gift. I abandon my own goodness. And I trust you, Lord Jesus. I believe you died for me. I I believe you arose from your grave. I accept your salvation in Jesus' name. Well, it could be that you just pray with me today and you say, Mark, I'm still not sure. I know exactly what happened. Well, we have a gift that we would like to give you. And if you're here at New Spring, if you're on campus today, all you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000, and they'll be ready to meet you out at the info centers. There's a Bible in here, a New Spring Bible, which, by the way, has the verse uh, in, in the back cover. I really wanted that to be in the back cover. And then also there's a book I wrote 10 years ago this coming New Year's Eve that talks about how, man, just answer some questions. So if you just prayed with me and you're here on campus, text PRAYED to 97000 and go out to an info center and they'll give this to you today. It's our way of saying we want to help you take your first steps. Now, if you're watching online or watching on television, all you have to do is text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000 and let us know about your decision and we will send this to you. So thank you for being here today. God bless you. We'll pick this up again next week.